Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Mind's Eye Radio. My name is Trevor, and I will be reading articles of politics, opinion, finance, business, science, and art from The Economist, from the ninth week of 2023. Cover Story The War is Making Ukraine a Western Country but the cost is appalling. Ukraine's armed forces had prepared for the invasion that began at 4.30 a.m. on February 24th, but many ordinary Ukrainians had not. Svetlana Povalyeva, a writer, had to be woken by her 24-year-old son, Roman Ratushny, at about 5 a.m. She wanted to go back to sleep. He insisted that she take the news seriously. They're bombing Boryaspil Airport with fucking ballistic missiles, he railed. Prepared or not, people like Mr. Ratushny jumped into action. Later that day, he returned to see his mother in military fatigues with a gun. She screamed at him hysterically, desperate to stop him going off to war and getting himself killed. But she also knew that he was a determined sort who had faced down death threats while campaigning to stop a wood in Kiev being bulldozed by developers. As she feared, her protests were in vain. Mr. Ratushny was not the only one doing the unexpected that day. When Andri, a fighter pilot, finally took a break after almost 19 hours of sorties, too exhausted to fly anymore, his commanding officer spooned stew into his mouth to revive him. Vitaly Shabunin ignored warnings that his name was on a list of people whom Russian forces had been instructed to kill, and set about turning his anti-corruption organization into a network to support the armed forces. Famously, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, declined to flee the onslaught. Instead, the next day, he posted a video of himself in the center of Kiev to reassure Ukrainians that the state was still functioning. We're all here, he declared. The military is here. Citizens and society are here. We're defending our independence, our country. With Mr. Zelensky setting the bar for courage, the Ukrainian state proved much less flimsy than the Russians and many Westerners had expected. What is more, many ordinary Ukrainians were eager to come to its defense. During the course of the war, the state and civic pride had become stronger still. We had belief in the resilience of our institutions, but it was only after 24th February that we became sure, says Denis Schmeil, the Prime Minister. We paid bills, collected taxes, supported businesses, provided services, and restructured the economy. Our Western partners tell us they are amazed at how strong we've been. The Russians, says Mikhailo Podolyak, an advisor to the President, don't get what Ukraine is about. They disliked that it was becoming a more functional democracy and, by fits and starts, drawing closer to Europe. But they did not understand how far that process had advanced. On the face of things, after all, the country was still riven by political divisions, addled by corruption and dominated by powerful oligarchs. Twice in a decade, in 2004 and 2014, protesters had toppled unpopular governments. The previous president, Petro Poroshenko, a media and chocolate magnate, had been voted out in part because of a litany of corruption scandals. Russian speakers in the south and east of the country seemed alienated, often voting differently from the rest of the country. And in 2014, 
Ukraine had not been able to stop Russia seizing Crimea and fomenting rebellion in the Donbass region. But all of the upheaval, while revealing discontent and division, also showed that civil society was becoming more vigorous and politics more responsive to it. People like Mr. Shabunin and Mr. Ratushny, who both participated in the Maidan protests in 2013-2014, kept up their activism after the crowds had dispersed. The first as an anti-corruption campaigner, the second as an environmentalist. Despite the domination of the media by oligarchs, a genuinely free press had also sprung up, abetted by the Internet. Large-scale migration for work to European countries and a liberal regime for tourism had helped develop an affinity for Europe. Meanwhile, efforts to curb corruption had begun to undermine Russia's chief means of exerting influence. The war has accelerated all these trends. Almost overnight, Ukraine's geographical divisions, which had anyway become less important since 2014, disappeared. Russian speakers bore the brunt of the invasion, since they are concentrated close to the Russian border. The indiscriminate, vicious offensive disabused them of any illusions they might have had about Russia's brotherly benevolence. According to Vladimir Panyoto, a pollster, most of the nine million or so Russian speakers in Ukraine now regard it as their homeland. Many of them are learning Ukrainian and immersing themselves in Ukrainian culture, which they might previously have considered quaint or parochial. The political rift about whether Ukraine's future lay more with Russia or with the West has also been decisively resolved. Ukraine has officially become a candidate for EU membership, a step that was seen as a decade away before the invasion. A full 86% of Ukrainians want their country to join NATO, up from barely half before the war. Fewer Ukrainians describe themselves as cynical than a year ago. Three and a half times as many, 68%, express optimism for the future. Trust in government and institutions has increased. Mr. Zelensky's approval rating shot up after the invasion, from barely 30% to over 90%. Mykola Davidyuk, a political analyst, likens the surprisingly concerted response to the invasion to the behavior of bees. In normal times, bees buzz around and make honey. But when a bear tries to steal it, they swarm and sting him. Ukrainians' willingness to swarm, in turn, reflects genuine improvements in its institutions, and above all in the armed forces. When Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, Viktor Muzhenko, Ukraine's top general at the time, said his army was literally in ruins and suffering from total demoralization. Much of the navy defected to Russia rather than fight. Mr. Poroshenko initiated sweeping military reforms. America, Britain, and Canada sent aid and advisors. Five battalions a year received training from America at a military base in western Ukraine. America first gave Ukraine Javelin anti-tank missiles, used to great effect to repel the Russian advance on Kyiv in 2017. Perhaps most importantly, Ukraine's military culture was transformed. By the time Russia invaded again last year, says Liam Collins, 
a former U.S. Army officer involved in those efforts, Ukraine had built a well-led professional force with a culture that encouraged junior leader initiative on the battlefield. Other parts of the government, too, have shown remarkable adaptiveness. Ukrzaleznitsya, the state railway company, runs trains through war zones, evacuating citizens and ferrying troops, supplies, and diplomats in the opposite direction. Government cybersecurity agencies draw on the best IT specialists in the country to provide a robust defense against some of the world's most sophisticated hackers. Engineers in the power industry worked around the clock, sometimes in body armor, to somehow bandage together infrastructure as fast as Russia bombed it. The Ukrainian state still has many weaknesses. Corruption continues to plague it. A recent scandal involving overpriced contracts for military rations shows that plenty of venal officials remain, even in the Ministry of Defense. Nor has petty politics disappeared. The president's office is paranoid about the stratospheric popularity of Valery Zaluzhny, the head of the armed forces, and appears to be circumscribing his role. Ukraine faces its biggest danger when politicians start interfering and telling soldiers what to do, warns Mr. Shabunin. And whatever strides Ukraine has made, they must be weighed against the catastrophic consequences of the war. Hundreds of thousands have died. Whole cities have been razed. Miss Povoyeva, the mother of Mr. Ratushny, who headed to the front so eagerly on the first day of the war, says she sensed her son would die many months before he eventually did, on a reconnaissance mission in June. She could see the desperation on his face. The pain is unbearable, she says, reflecting on her son's squandered potential. We are losing our best people, the very people we need, if we are to build the modern, just society we all now demand. Section 1 a new book traces the evolution of the Fed's extraordinary powers. After saving the economy, the mighty central bank confronts its limits. Limitless by Gianna Smialik There's an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. This comment, made in March 2020 by Neil Kashkari, president of the Fed's branch in Minneapolis, was intended to provide reassurance. As COVID-19 struck, markets were in meltdown and economic disaster loomed. The central bank swung into emergency mode, injecting vast, if not quite infinite, sums of cash into the financial system in order to avert a crisis. The actions worked a little too well. Before long, growth was recovering, markets were booming, and price pressures were building. The Fed ended up having to fight America's worst outbreak of inflation in decades, and that fight is ongoing. This sharp duality poses a dilemma for any appraisal of the Fed's record during the pandemic. Should the focus be on the potential chaos early on and its courage in devising unprecedented solutions, or on the aftermath of its rescue operations and the bank's slowness to realize that its new and formidable foe was inflation? In the thick of the inflation battle, it is tempting to emphasize the Fed's missteps. Limitless, by Giannis Mialik of the New York Times, 
is a useful corrective. She provides a bracing account of just how badly things could have turned out when COVID shutdowns led millions to lose their jobs overnight and pushed the financial system to the brink of collapse. In one passage, she describes a meeting in late February 2020, a couple of weeks before most Americans started paying close attention to the pandemic. Jerome Powell, the Fed's chairman, asked Richard Clarida, his second-in-command, whether this might turn into a repeat of the global financial crisis of 2007-2009. No, Mr. Clarida replied. The worst-case scenario means it basically looks like the Great Depression. That warning soon seemed prophetic. Global commerce ground to a halt. Stocks plunged and long queues formed at food banks. A deep freeze in credit markets portended a still graver calamity, striking at core parts of the financial system that had remained safe even in the darkest days of 2008. By the end of March 2020, the central bank had announced that it would buy corporate bonds for the first time in its history. Ultimately, the Fed's balance sheet swelled to nearly $9 trillion, a breathtaking increase and more than double its size at the start of the pandemic. It, got, it only got to that point because of the institution's rapid evolution over the previous two decades, a history crisply laid out by Ms. Mialik. It was Ben Bernanke, the Fed's chairman during the global financial crisis, who pioneered many of the tools deployed and enlarged by Mr. Powell. More than that, though, an intellectual shift had persuaded officials that they could let the labor market run hotter than once believed without triggering an inflationary spiral. Ms. Mialik paints nicely textured portraits of the main participants in these debates, spanning the gamut from one near-libertarian regulator to his more interventionist sparring partner. In late 2020, Mr. Powell ushered in a new policy framework which, in effect, committed the central bank to keeping interest rates lower for longer than it might have previously done. In retrospect, critics have singled that out as a dangerous mistake. The title of the book refers not just to the Fed's seemingly endless support for the economy when disaster strikes, but also to its mission creep over the years. Some want it to aim for greater racial equality or to treat climate change as a financial risk. Others think it should craft a new digital currency. These are important issues. But contrary to the perception of boundless powers, the fact is that the Fed faces two kinds of very real constraints. The first are political. Central banking independence is a precious inheritance from hard experience and can be preserved only by staying, as far as possible, above the ideological fray. The second are economic. Stubbornly high inflation is a stark reminder that loose monetary policy can go too far. From today's perspective, the Fed looks more limited than limitless. Section 2 Nepo babies are taking over the workplace. One in three Americans has worked for mum or dad. One of the peculiar things about income is how easily it is passed on from one generation to the next. Nearly four in ten American children born to parents in the top fifth of the income distribution 
remain in the top fifth as adults. One reason that earnings tend to persist across generations is that high-income parents pass along valuable attributes via their genes. They also tend to invest more in their children's education, boosting their earnings potential in the labor market. Family connections matter, too. The offspring of celebrities who work in the same industries have been branded Nepo Babies. But the phenomenon stretches far beyond Hollywood. New research shows how widespread and lucrative such links are. A paper by Matthew Steger, an economist at Opportunity Insights, a research group at Harvard University, suggests that people who find a job through a parent, either at a small family-run business or a Fortune 500 company, enjoy a significant boost in earnings. Using data from America's Census Bureau, Mr. Steger analyzed the job histories of 32 million people who graduated from high school between 2000 and 2013. He found that, although just 5% of people work for a parent's employer at their first job, by the age of 30, 29% have worked with their father or mother at one time or another. Such stints apparently pay off. Mr. Steger estimates that those who work at a parent's employer earn 19% more than those who don't in their first job, largely because they gain access to higher-paying industries and firms. When Mr. Steger looked at who takes advantage of such family connections, he found that it is disproportionately those from families that are already well-off. Just 2% of children with parents at the bottom percentile of the income distribution work for a parent's employer, compared with 7% of children with parents at the top percentile. Children from affluent families also benefit much more from such connections than those from poorer backgrounds. Mr. Steger found that working with a parent in the bottom fifth of the income distribution does not significantly affect earnings, whereas working with a parent in the top fifth boosts earnings by 20%. White children, especially white sons, exploit parental connections more often than black ones, even after controlling for income. Hispanic children do so at even higher rates. America is said to be the land of opportunity. But when it comes to jobs with mum and dad, the opportunities are mainly for those at the top. Section 3. Two of the most enigmatic phenomena in the cosmos may be linked. Black holes could be reserves of the dark energy that pushes the universe apart. Black holes, objects so dense that nothing can escape their pull, are among the most eye-catching predictions of general relativity, a model of gravitational attraction proposed by Albert Einstein over a century ago. They squat invisibly in the middle of galaxies, feasting on stars and interstellar debris. They are also a clear indicator that general relativity's days as gravity's best explanation are numbered. That theory says a black hole's core is a point of infinite density and pressure called a singularity. This, says Chris Pearson at RAL Space, Britain's National Laboratory for Space Research, is a mathematical impossibility.
a host of more palatable alternatives have been proposed, but none has the observational evidence needed to back it up. Two new papers in the Astrophysical Journal and Astrophysical Journal Letters, co-written by Dr. Pearson, are intended to change that. The paper's authors scoured astronomical data for information about black holes at two stages of their lives. The first sort were youngsters at the centers of new galaxies in which stars were forming at a prolific rate. The second were more elderly examples in galaxies where star formation has ceased. According to their assumptions, the second group show what fate has in store for the first. To their surprise, the researchers found that the old black holes had grown ten times faster than cosmological models would predict. But they think they know what might be happening. Previous work has shown that, in general relativity, the compression of matter past a certain point can lead to the formation of a zone containing vacuum energy, the background energy of empty space. Instead of an infinitely dense singularity, it is therefore possible that black holes contain a well of such energy, the presence of which would account for the observed mass discrepancy. This, says Dr. Pearson, is the first time there's been observational evidence that links these theories to the real world. More radical implications follow. One of the universe's most mysterious features is that the expansion which began with the Big Bang is accelerating. The driving force is labeled dark energy, but no one knows what it actually is. In a daring theoretical leap, Dr. Pearson and his colleagues suggest that the pockets of vacuum energy present, present in black holes could be responsible. What would make this possible is that the properties of vacuum energy are dependent on the size of the universe as a whole. An expanding universe, say theorists, would contain vacuum energy at ever greater densities. This not only means that black holes would gain mass in hitherto unexplained ways, but that their growth would fill the universe with vast reservoirs of energy. They could, in other words, be sources of dark energy. The team's calculations show that the size and number of black holes in the universe would be enough to account for all the measured influence of dark energy. The neatness of this explanation is remarkable, but elegance is no proof of truth. Much more work is needed to discount other, albeit less spectacular, possibilities. Section 4. Sea ice in Antarctica is at its lowest ever level again. A recent decline of ice around the South Pole worries climate scientists. At the beginning of March 1898, a Belgian research vessel became stuck in the ice of Antarctica's Bellingshausen Sea. The Belgica and its crew, which included Roald Amundsen, who later became the first man to reach the South Pole, remained there for a year. Scientists aboard Polarstern, a German research ship currently in the same place, now have a very different view. Earlier this week, the expedition leader said he had never seen the sea so devoid of ice. On February 13th, sea ice across the Antarctic as a whole 
spanned 1.91 million square kilometers, the lowest level since satellite records began in 1979. The world is now, on average, 1 to 1.3 degrees Celsius hotter than it was before the Industrial Revolution. But that change has not occurred evenly. The poles are warming faster than regions in the middle of the globe. That has obvious consequences for floating sea ice at the northern pole. The extent of sea ice in the Arctic has declined by about 40% in the past 40 years. The situation is more complicated around the South Pole, where a thinner ozone layer has a cooling effect. Unlike the Arctic, which is an ocean surrounded by land, the Antarctic is a landmass surrounded by the vast Southern Ocean, which absorbs huge amounts of heat from the atmosphere. That, along with the continent's high elevation, slows down the rate at which it warms. Sea ice extent around Antarctica was relatively stable until 2014. It has been declining precipitously since then. One study by a climatologist at America's NASA reckons that between 2014 and 2017, Antarctic sea ice receded three times as quickly as during any comparable period in the Arctic. Antarctic sea ice shrinks to a minimum during late February and early March, during the Southern Hemisphere's summer. It hit record lows in 2022, and again now in 2023. These changes have prompted much research into how global warming is affecting Antarctica. The biggest concern is over the enormous West Antarctic ice sheet, which is smaller but less stable than its eastern counterpart. Scientists say that it risks collapse if it melts beyond a certain point, which could result in a global sea level rise of up to 3 meters. This is regarded as one of climate change's most consequential tipping points. It is unlikely to happen anytime soon, but increasing evidence of instability in Antarctica's ice sheets is cause for concern. Section 5. A New Way to Clean Up the Steel Industry Carbon dioxide emissions could be cut by more than 90%. Making steel is a dirty business. For every ton of it, some 1.8 tons of carbon dioxide are emitted into the atmosphere. As a result, steelmaking accounts for 7-9% to of the world's anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. Cleaner ways of producing steel are being explored. Mostly, these are based on the use of hydrogen instead of coke as the reagent which extracts the oxygen from iron oxide ore. But much of the pertinent technology is in its infancy. That, together with the cost of converting from old to new equipment, which might run to several billion dollars per plant, means it could take decades for steelmakers to go green. Yulong Ding and Harriet Kildall of the University of Birmingham in Britain have, however, come up with something they think might change things. They've developed a process which could be fitted quickly and cheaply to existing plants and would cut their emissions by around 90%. Steelmakers are talking to them about getting a demonstration version up and running within five years. Doctors Ding and Kildall propose employing a closed-loop 
carbon recycling system to replace most of the coke. At the moment, coke and ore are packed in alternate layers inside a tower-like blast furnace and, as the name implies, blasted with air that has been heated to more than 1,200 degrees Celsius. At this temperature, the carbon in the coke reacts with the oxygen in the air to yield carbon monoxide. This gas then goes on to react with the oxygen in the ore, liberating the iron in a process called reduction. Heat from the various reactions involved pushes the furnace's temperature above iron's melting point of 1,538 degrees Celsius, and the resulting liquid metal flows out of the bottom of the tower. Meanwhile, carbon dioxide and other gases, including residual nitrogen from the injected air, which starts as 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen, are vented from the top. The modification Drs. Ding and Kildall propose cuts coke out of the loop by pumping carbon monoxide directly into the blast furnace. The clever bit is where this gas comes from. It is made by capturing the CO2 produced in the furnace and recycling it by splitting it into carbon monoxide and oxygen. The oxygen thus released can then be used in the second part of the steelmaking process in which that gas is blown through molten iron in a differently designed furnace to burn off part of the carbon now dissolved in it and arrive at the optimum ratio of iron to carbon to create the type of steel required. What makes all this possible is an intriguing material called a perovskite. This sits in a reaction chamber at the heart of the recycling system. The original perovskite was a mineral discovered in the Ural Mountains in Russia in 1839 and named after Count Lev Perovsky, a mineralogist from that country. The name has now been generalized to refer to a group of materials which share this mineral's distinctive crystal structure without necessarily sharing its chemical composition. Researchers are finding a variety of roles for perovskites. One type is used to make solar panels more efficient. Another can produce phone screens that are almost unbreakable. Further variants are employed in fuel cells and other clean energy systems. Doctors Ding and Kildall made their version by grinding up barium carbonate, calcium carbonate, niobium oxide, and iron oxide, mixing the resulting powders, and then baking the mixture in an oven. The result is BCNF1. When the recycling system pumps the CO2 through the reaction chamber, the BCNF1 grabs oxygen atoms from the gas and absorbs them into its crystalline structure, leaving behind carbon monoxide. This cannot go on forever, though. After about a day, the BCNF1 becomes saturated with oxygen atoms and so has to be rejuvenated. That works by taking nitrogen emitted from the blast furnace and pumping it through the reaction chamber. This creates a low oxygen environment inside the chamber, encouraging the BCNF1 to release its oxygen. 
When the oxygen is used to make steel, that also emits carbon dioxide. But this, too, can be recycled through the reaction chamber. The trick to making things efficient is to plumb two reaction chambers into the system. One can then be used to make carbon monoxide, while the other is rejuvenating and producing oxygen. After a day, their roles are reversed, allowing round-the-clock operation. The idea has been tested successfully in a laboratory without any degradation of the BCNF1, says Dr. Kildall. That part of the system works, she adds. It just needs to be scaled. For the trial plant to get underway, some hurdles will have to be overcome. One is that besides being a source of carbon monoxide for the iron reduction process, the coke also provides a structural support for the ore in a blast furnace, allowing the gas to rise up through it and the molten iron to flow down, so some is still required. One idea the team have is to replicate this support using ceramic materials. The science thus looks promising, but what about the numbers? To evaluate those, the researchers looked at Britain's steel industry, which makes some 7.6 million tons of the stuff a year. Two firms, Tata Steel and British Steel, each turn out 3 million tons at their plants in Port Talbot and Scunthorpe, respectively using the conventional approach of blast furnace followed by oxygen furnace. This accounts for 94% of the sector's British emissions. The remainder comes from electric arc furnaces, which use mainly scrap steel and can be run on renewable electricity. The Port Talbot and Scunthorpe plants could be adapted to use BCNF1 at a cost of around £360 million, or $435 million, each. The team calculate in a recent paper in the Journal of Cleaner Production. Of this, 210 million pounds would pay for the 42,500 tons of perovskite needed by each plant. That material might have to be replaced every five to ten years. However, the researchers estimate that, besides the green benefits accruing, the initial investment would be repaid in 22 months by the elimination of expensive metallurgical coke from the process and from selling any oxygen that was surplus to requirements. Even allowing for a small increase in electricity consumption, implementing the system on both sites would save about 1.3 billion pounds over the course of about five years. There would also, the researchers conclude, be a reduction in carbon dioxide emissions of 88%, resulting in a countrywide fall in overall emissions of 2.9%. The point of replacing coke with hydrogen would have been to reduce the ore in a way that created water rather than carbon dioxide, thus eliminating climate warming emissions. Hydrogen can, moreover, be produced sustainably, using renewable electricity to electrolyze water. But the infrastructure required to make, store, and transport green hydrogen does not yet exist. And there are competing demands for the gas, including as a replacement for natural gas as a fuel for boilers and in the production of green aviation fuel. 
So Dr. Ding's and Dr. Kildall's proposal does look like a serious alternative. Given more work, it might be possible for BCNF-1 to replace all of the coke in a blast furnace, cutting emissions down close to zero, reckons Dr. Ding. If the talks with steelmakers are successful and a trial plant is built, the next step is to see whether the system proves its worth. If it does, then a curious crystal will start to give green hydrogen a serious run for its money. Section 6. Plants call for help with a chemical employed by people as a drug. The talk through their roots, asking others to summon wasps using L-DOPA. Botanists have known for years that some plants send distress calls when under attack from herbivorous insects, such as aphids, and that these calls lead neighbors to release volatile chemicals, which draw other insects into the area to attack the attackers. This response brings mutual benefits. It helps the plant already under attack, and it also stops the infestation spreading. That at least some of these calls for help travel underground is also clear, but the details were murky. Now, a study published in Ecology Letters by Emilio Guerreri of the Institute for Sustainable Plant Protection in Turin has shown that these subterranean cries for help are made using a molecule L-DOPA, which achieved fame in the 1990s as the star of a film called Awakenings. Awakenings is based on cases described in its own non-fiction book of that name by Oliver Sacks, a psychiatrist who lived in New York. Sacks used L-DOPA, a precursor of several so-called neurotransmitters, including dopamine and epinephrine, which carry signals between neurons in animals to treat victims of encephalitis lethargica, a mysterious illness that spread around the world in the second and third decades of the 20th century. Encephalitis lethargica caused catatonia. L-DOPA permitted victims to awaken though only for a while. Dr. Guerreri worked with broad-bean plants, pea aphids, and wasps called aphidious ervi, which lay their eggs in aphids. Past studies had shown that broad beans can recruit neighbors as allies, even when covered with plastic bags, hence the belief that the signals involved were subterranean but no one knew the chemical doing the recruiting. By growing the beans hydroponically, rather than in soil, he and his colleagues were able to find out. They raised 80 bean plants, infested 40 of them with aphids two weeks after germination, and then, three days later, tested samples of the hydroponic solution of each using a process called bioassay-guided fractionation. The principal difference they found turned out to be levels of L-DOPA. And when, having discovered that, they raised their further batches of beans and fed synthetic L-DOPA to half of each batch, they discovered first that those receiving the molecule, but not the others, were indeed attractive to A. Irvi, and second, that these plants produced more than the others of three particular chemicals which previous work had suggested are the wasp-attracting substances. 
that L-DOPA plays a role, albeit a different one, in communication in species as diverse as human beings and bean plants is intriguing. But it is also useful information. What works for broad beans probably works for a range of other crops, and L-DOPA is easy and cheap to manufacture, so it might make sense to add it to irrigation systems, thereby discouraging aphids by recruiting wasps to the cause. Section 7. If stigma is the problem, using different words may not help. New terms can take on the pejorative undertones of the ones they replace. The Associated Press Stylebook's Twitter feed is not often a source of hilarity, but the wire service recently tweeted, We recommend avoiding general and often dehumanizing the labels, such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French, the disabled, the college-educated. After the tweet went viral, the Associated Press deleted it and apologized for dehumanizing the French. Despite the mockery, the AP advice has solid reasoning behind it, that of people-centered language. English, like many other languages, allows the use of an adjective as a noun. The good, the bad, the ugly. But in contrast to some other languages, it is increasingly considered essentializing to refer to the poor or the disabled as though they are nothing else. This especially applies to characteristics that might be considered unfortunate. The AP did not apologize to the college-educated, as it did to the French, but it did not need to. Nobody really minds being lumped in either group. The issue is essentializing combined with stigma. Some people are also troubled by bare group nouns such as blacks, gays, and Jews, though these two seem to be on the decline. Fortunately, it is not hard to add another word without clunking up your prose, either people or, even better, something descriptive as in black veterans, gay activists, or Jewish voters. These make these phrases a bit more three-dimensional, like the people they point to. These are far from the only ideas flowing into journalists' inboxes today. Suggestions abound. Replace slaves with enslaved people, minorities with minoritized people or racialized people, addicts with drug users or people with a substance abuse problem, obese people with people with obesity, convicts or inmates with those who are incarcerated, and so on. In each instance, the target is a term that is or can be seen as pejorative. The alternative is meant to be less so. But those who encourage these lexical replacements face several problems. One is that, though a case can be made for each individual change, adopting everyone will quickly make a piece of writing lumbering, since every new option is longer than the one it is supposed to replace. It will also make prose seem more unnatural, since the entire point is to replace words in common use with phrases that are not. Good journalism is ideally conversational and accessible, 
calling for a brisk and compelling style. Changing the world is hard. Changing the language is a lot easier, which is why linguistic engineering can tempt people who may feel they have no other tools at hand apart from their keyboards. But it does not seem to work out as hoped. Replacing a stigmatized word often merely results in the stigma attaching to the new word. Retarded was once a polite way of saying feeble-minded. It was in long-standing clinical use before becoming a playground insult and, ultimately, deeply offensive. Special needs came next, but now special is a mean-spirited taunt, too. In the same vein, handicapped was a kinder replacement for crippled and homeless for vagrant. Now, handicapped is out and disabled is in or better yet, person with a disability. Unhoused is gaining ground over homeless. This euphemism treadmill has been observed since at least the 1970s. Nevertheless, people still hope to remake the world through language. Some groups have taken another tack and reclaimed older terms. African American had a 30-year heyday but now black is back, and even given a capital B by many. Though hearing impaired is still in medical parlance, many deaf people proudly refer to themselves as such, also with a capital D. Other activists have decided there is nothing wrong with being fat, and have wholeheartedly embraced the term. As with reclaiming slurs, the idea seems to be that showing pride is likely to be more effective than swapping words. As for writers, good work should humanize whatever it is about, which is why stories often begin with a named person before going into causation and abstraction. If such writing is sharply as well as humanely done, it will be compelling to readers and may even be of benefit to its subjects. To that end, the language of everyday conversation is likely to be at least as useful as the latest terminology recommended by activists. People-centered writing is indeed a good thing, but there is more than one way of putting people at its heart. Section 8. At Young Thug's blockbuster trial, rap lyrics are used as evidence. Their use in court raises issues of prejudice and free expression. Read aloud in court, the words sounded like a confession. Fuck the judge, that this mob life cookin' white brick. Not long ago, the defendant, Jeffrey Williams, was rapping these lines on stage. Now the songs that propelled him to fame as Young Thug, earning him a Grammy Award and an appearance on Saturday Night Live, are being used against him. Prosecutors in Atlanta allege that his record label, YSL, which stands for Young Stoner Life, is both a music collective and a violent gang. They say Young Thug is its kingpin, and cite his lyrics as evidence. Mr. Williams denies criminal wrongdoing of any kind. The trial, which began in January and could last several months, involves numerous other defendants associated with YSL, who also protest their innocence, though some have taken plea deals. 
It is far from the first to enlist rap music as evidence. In both America and Britain, the practice has become increasingly common. But most cases involve amateur artists, usually young black men. Young Thugs is the most high-profile yet, crystallizing questions of freedom of expression, racial bias, and the place of art in court. Rap music first went on trial in the 1980s, when gangster rap, a new genre, was the sound of America's streets. In a break from some early hip-hop artists, whose lyrics rarely mentioned crime, gangster rappers evoked drugs and violence in provocative songs, such as N.W.A.'s Fuck the Police. At first, some such lyrics were themselves considered a crime. Two Live Crew, a rap group, were tried under obscenity laws. The music became only more popular, so authorities found a different way to stigmatize rap, says Eric Nielsen, co-author of Rap on Trial. Using lyrics as evidence against artists charged with other offenses, typically relating to drugs or violence. The number of trials involving rap lyrics has surged since the late 2000s, boosted partly by social media. More rappers can now reach a wide audience online, but in doing so, they unwittingly provide material for the authorities. In America and Britain, police monitor social media for lyrics and music videos, which are sometimes used in trials. In London, the Metropolitan Police has a unit partly dedicated to that task. Belonging to a rap crew is sometimes conflated with membership of a criminal gang, says Jack Lerner of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Meanwhile, the internet and streaming data have affirmed the appeal of violent themes in rap music. To stand out, artists must sound as real as possible, said Losky, a British rapper who makes drill a genre that uses grisly lyrics at a recent trial. If rapping about a sunny day in the neighborhood made the most money, many young African Americans would says Mac Phipps, who spent 21 years in jail for manslaughter after a trial featuring lyrics. Atlanta, home to Young Thug and YSL, produced Trap, the most popular rap subgenre of recent years. Drugs and crime are staple themes. I told them to shoot a hundred rounds, runs a line in Young Thug's track Anybody. As Atlanta became a hip-hop capital, and as its music grew gorier, gang violence surged, says George Cheedy, a local crime journalist. The authorities think rappers have fueled gang disputes, including between YSL and a rival group known as YFN, headed by YFN Lucci, another popular rapper. Prosecutors say Young Thug's lyrics mention real crimes committed in that gang rivalry. He stands accused of conspiracy to commit racketeering, along with weapons-related charges and others, all of which he denies. One line included in the case against YSL is, She getting robbed by Tick, a possible allusion to a YSL artist previously arrested for robbery who has taken a plea deal in the current trial. If you decide to admit your crimes over a beat, I'm going to use it, says Fanny Willis, district attorney for Fulton County, which includes most of Atlanta. 
She thinks lyrics should be treated in the same way as other evidence that, according to prosecutors, implicates young thug in serious crimes. Others disagree. Politicians, including Stacey Abrams, have expressed concern about the use of lyrics as evidence. Rappers are storytellers, protested Drake, Coldplay, and other recording artists in a joint open letter. The trial, they maintained, is an attempt to criminalize black creativity and artistry. Young Thug's lawyer says his lyrics should be barred from court and that they are written from the perspective of a fake persona. That is a common trope in rap, which is replete with metaphor, exaggeration, and violent motifs. Yet in court, generic or fictional lines are sometimes presented as facts, or as if they refer to specific crimes. Other art forms are rarely treated in this way. A recent New York Times investigation found just four American cases since 1950 in which other kinds of lyrics or fiction were enlisted as evidence of assault or violence. Hundreds of criminal cases involved rap. Murder ballads are common in country music. Country stars are not arraigned for them. Then again, says Mr. Cheedy, invoking a famous country song about a killing, there was no dead body in Reno to track to Johnny Cash. By contrast, people in Atlanta were murdered. Jurors who may not know much about rap are often told little about its conventions. Prosecutors may employ experts to parse lyrics, typically police officers. Some reportedly use the online Urban Dictionary or Wikipedia to translate slang. One told a jury that brethren meant associate in a gang when it usually just means brother, says Richard Bramwell of Lowbro University, who has defended rappers as an expert witness in Britain. Some argue that even if lyrics do refer to real crimes, they should be kept out of court. The term rap music can itself invoke racial biases, prejudicing jurors against defendants and leading them to misconstrue other evidence, says Mr. Lerner. A recent study showed that people were more likely to consider lyrics to be threatening and drawn from life when told they came from rap rather than country. If a case is strong, critics say, guilt can be proved without involving music. Lawyers, artists, and activists have called for restrictions on the use of lyrics in trials. In 2022, California passed the first such law, which requires judges to consider whether creative expression would inject racial bias and undue prejudice before admitting it as evidence. It applies to all forms of art, but was inspired by rap. The New York in New York, a proposed bill, backed by Jay-Z, a hip-hop star, would ban rap lyrics from court if they do not have factual links to the case. A federal bill has been mooted. Others believe making more use of genuinely expert witnesses would make trials of amateur rappers fairer. Mr. Nielsen will soon be performing that service for Young Thug. In court in Atlanta, he will attempt to put into context such lines as, I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. Well, that's all the time I have for today, but thank you again for tuning in to Mind's Eye Radio. You've been listening to this week's edition 
of The Economist. This is Trevor, wishing you a good rest of your day.